Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams, and I am so very happy that you made it to class this morning because we are tackling a very crucial and often controversial topic in the justice system this morning, the death penalty. As we dive into this critical issue, let's first look at where the nation stands. According to a Pew Research Center study, while a majority in the United States still support the death penalty for things like murder, this support is flaky with growing concerns about how it's used. There are concerns about wrongful convictions, racial disparities, and the overall cost of capital punishment in general. Now, while the majority of the states have the use of the death penalty on the books, actual executions are rare. 13 of the states that have the death penalty, along with the U.S. military, haven't actually carried out an execution in over a decade or more. That also includes states like California, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, where governors have imposed formal moratoriums on executions. In our discussion today, we are going to explore what I personally believe, my personal politics, is an inhumane, archaic practice that human beings should have evolved from, like, the turn of the modern century. But, my politics. We'll discuss the racial disparities, the decreasing use of the death penalty, and the risk of wrongful, wrongful convictions. So coming to the front of the class, I had to get an expert because I can't just be talking about my opinions. So the coming to the front of the class for this discussion is Jami Hodge, the executive director of Equal Justice USA, who has more than 15 years of criminal justice experience as a prosecutor, policy advisor, and TA provider. That's technical assistance. Yes. So she and the center have worked to end the death penalty in in, what was that, 11 states and counting. Yes. So in our discussion, we're also going to explore key themes from the Death Penalty Information Center's annual death penalty 2023 year-end report, which highlights the ongoing challenges and changes within the death penalty system, including the number of executions, death sentences, and key legal development. So we're going to discuss that and more with our guests, Jami Hodge, welcome to the front of the Sunday Civics class. Thank you so much, Eljoy, for having me and especially for highlighting this important topic. It is one that is near and dear to our work at Equal Justice USA, and it is something I look forward to having a wonderful class discussion about wonderful. today. So before we dive into this heavy topic, I'm going to ask you, since this is your first time at the front of the class, if you can share the story of your first civic action. And I just want folks to know, particularly those of you who are listening and not watching yet, that when I told her about this, like she had the (laughs) same reaction that every guest has. Like they look up to the left or to the right, trying to remember. It's like trying to look at their brain, look at their brain and be like, brain, do you remember? Yes. (laughs) Yes, because these years are passing. So it's going back a little bit. And appreciate the question and just appreciate this platform, Eljoy, what you're doing here in in both creating the space for people to learn, but especially for people to engage. So thank you again for the invitation. And when I think about the the first, I think what comes to mind first, it would be in college. I went to the University of Michigan and in the 90s, affirmative action was under attack. 
and being a member of the Black Student Union and eventually serving on the executive board of the NAACP chapter at U of M, we were all about the actions and drawing attention and standing in unity with students all over the country about the need for affirmative action. But I I feel like it goes before then. Like I um, just feel like even as a young child, you know, like it's just having a, a deep desire and concern about issues of fairness, um, whether that was fairness in my house with my siblings and my parents or fairness of, you know, what was happening in school. But I tended to be someone who wanted to serve in school leadership, student council, those things um, because of issues of fairness. So I feel like it started earlier than college, but, but college was definitely participating in actions to preserve affirmative action, which we know is continues to be under yeah. attack. For a lot of people, they're the activism they can remember is when you come into your own, right? Your young adulthood. Yes. You have the ability to have your own thoughts, right? About what yes. you believe on an issue. To engage politically, you're also a lot of times away from home. And so you have to, you know, like the kids say, stand on business um, by yourself. <laughs> so yes. thinking about yes. how to do that. And, you know, it's very interesting as you bring up the issue of fairness, because I've said this on the show before. Kids have a, a moral compass in terms of things that are fair and not fair. Right. We can see that yeah. in their arguments with each other. Right. Like <laughs> you got to do this. That ain't fair. You know, like arguments right. of that standpoint. But then as they progress and engage in their community and in the in the larger world, they start to point out things that are not fair. This doesn't yes. sit right or sound right. And uh, along the way, we tend to lose that, right? Where instead of yeah. calling it out, which I think children are very good at doing, right? Pointing the finger and calling yeah. out, that ain't fair. And it's your responsibility. They're very good. They know who's, yeah. in, you know, who's in charge of it. And who said yep. it? And, and maybe that's something that we need to revisit within our um, own civic engagement, right? To be able to point the finger at the decision maker or at the entity that uh, committed the act and say, this is not fair, yes. call it out and you need to change it. Yes, yes. And I love that. I mean, I think there's so much we can learn from children. I also think there's... All you know, often when they're very young, they also haven't been jaded. And so there's like a purity in love for everyone that's not um, impacted by race or ethnicity or, you know, gender or other categories that life and influence shifts as they grow. But that that purity of love that I think drives that desire for fairness, you know, we, we are all, we all should have whatever it is. It shouldn't be one person gets it and another person gets it. So children definitely point us in the right way in so many yeah. ways. So continuing the same thing in, of talking about your journey, can you talk about your journey into advocacy around the death penalty and your role at the Equal Justice uh, USA organization? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and first in my family to graduate college and certainly go to law school. I'm so just incredibly blessed, Eljoy, and that's something I stand in daily and have gratitude for daily. But, you know, growing up in the inner city, you see a lot of things, particularly when it comes to seeing and, you know, just saw the impact of sort of the harm of the system in my family at a very early age um, through cousins who were incarcerated at a young age. Um, and then having my own brother, one of my favorite people in the world, been time incarcerated. 
So it that sort of backdrop I share because I think people are often surprised to learn that I spent more than a decade as a prosecutor. I think most people think of prosecutors as folks who are, you know, hard charging and want to punish. And that's why they take the role. And I, I took the role actually knowing that the system was harmful and knowing that it wasn't fair and that it was particularly harmful to Black and brown communities. But I took it believing that if you put the right people in power who hold prosecutors have some of the most power in the system, that maybe we could get different outcomes. But what my journey has been and has shown me is that a system rooted in the foundation and the history that it's rooted in, our system is deeply rooted in racial oppression, that it, do, it kind of doesn't matter who you put in the roles, because ultimately it's going to cause the harm that it was set up to cause. And so that is what has led me to now an advocacy journey. You know, I tried after I left out of the system to, to work for an organization whose job was to try to fix it, you know, to fix policies and change them in the criminal legal system. And that work is incredibly important. I never want to minimize that work because our system ensnares and impacts too many people. But I think for me, what I recognize is particularly around issues of violence, you know, which are those that generally get to the level Oh, well, not generally. Usually our, it, it will take extreme violence to get to a death penalty system that when it comes to issues of violence, we're not willing to do things differently. Um, punishment is the focus. It's the sole focus of the system. And that if we truly want to get to safety, that we have to have a different approach. And that's really what brought me to Equal Justice USA as an organization born out of doing the death penalty advocacy for decades that then grew its mission to include going beyond the death penalty and still doing that important work, but how do we build community safety and the community the community's ability to heal while we decrease the state's ability to kill, doing both things at the same time? We are talking to Johnny Hodge, the executive director of Equal Justice USA, and we began the conversation talking about her journey and the organization's journey into advocating for the abolishment of the death penalty, which adding my personal politics in here, I believe, I mean, like, I feel like there's some things that human beings, like as a collective, we should have evolved from, right? Like practices we should have evolved from. We evolved in believing that, you know, children should be in school and not working in coal mines and things like that. However, that's still happening in other places of the world and we still need to, you know, combat that. But we came to a point where it was like, ah, children should be at play. Children should be in a learning space, an environment space. They shouldn't be outside 12 hours a day working, right? We came to a belief that, you know, people should, you know, have basic standards in terms of sanitation, should have like we we yeah. came to places yes. and evolved as humans to believe, okay, we can move on from this because we have greater technology, we know better, you know, all of that stuff. It seems to me that the death penalty is one of those you you mentioned it as is a punishment, right? That our justice system is like, you've done something so egreg- egregious that we need to punish you indefinitely, you know, yeah. for. And it seems so archaic and barbaric, yet, you know, just looking at some of the public opinion polls about it, 
you know, things are kind of shaky. It de- you know, for some people, it depends on what they did. It depends on yeah. what they look like. It depends on if the person, yeah. you know, has faith or doesn't. Yeah. Why? Where are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's such. I, I love the context of we've evolved in other ways. Why not here? And I think the answer to that question is deeply rooted in history. So much of my journey to advocacy has been becoming by becoming a student of history. And if we look, if we place that historical context, and so I want to specifically, you know, call out lynching um, and racial terror and so much of what happened in the early 1900s that led to the Great Migration. Um, there was a narrative that drove lynching that we've never fully addressed that I believe still drives why we are okay with killing people, even when we know we get it wrong. We had three exonerations this year, and we're still, as a country, okay with having that ultimate, there's no coming back from that punishment. You know, you can't say, oops, we made a mistake, let's fix it. So even when we know we get it wrong, we're still, we still have this willingness to do it. And I think what underlies it is the narrative that we've never really addressed. You know, the narrative that drove lynching was that Black people were dangerous, were criminal, were violent, and needed to be controlled. And while we've had laws to address through the civil rights movement and other things, I think as a country, we've always failed to address the narrative and to actually attack the narrative and and go back and um, really humanize because dehumanization is so much of what drove slavery and drove um, the racial terror that followed it to humanize Black people and other marginalized communities to show that we're, like, we're worthy. There's a dignity. There's an inherent worth um, that shouldn't be taken away so easily with something as final as the death penalty. But that, that would be my first answer. I think that's, that's a, a problem that we are just really starting to reckon with and beginning to crack, but it has been around so long. There's so much work for us. Yeah. And given this, you know, nuanced public opinion on the death penalty, how does the organization address the complexities in its advocacy, right, of changing laws and trying to abolish this practice? What has worked for us and has really led to success in ending the death penalty in prior states is lifting up the voices of victims, but not just any victims, right? Like so much of what happens, the, the punishment focus of our criminal legal system is done in the name of victims. I can tell you as a prosecutor, you know, for many years that, you know, at the end of a case, we often what we're saying to a judge is, you know, this is how you get quote unquote justice for the victim in this case. And what we're asking for is a prison sentence or, or, or some other type of punishment. What I love about our work at Equal Justice USA is that we actually have worked really hard on the narrative of redefining justice so that justice doesn't just mean punishment, but that justice can mean safety, healing, and accountability that actually repairs the harm. So um, in our advocacy, one of the, the early lessons from our founding executive director, Sherry Silberstein, and others was that in order to get to change, we have to uplift the voices of victims and survivors. But we have to uplift the voices of victims and survivors who traditionally had not been hurt. And so that was Black murder victim family members, because so much of the victim movement has been and, and in some ways continues to be very white-centered. So when we think of victims, when 
when people are, you know, are thinking about who who victims and survivors are, they're often thinking or or emphasizing whiteness. They're emphasizing white women. I dare I say, um, mainly that's and, what we see, at yep. least you know, as someone who watches crime yeah. on TV all yes. the time, right? It's always the picture of the you know, conventionally attractive white young girl who, you know, who was brutally, you know, assaulted yes. or, or something like that. And yeah. that, that is kind of the central view. Which ties so, I mean, if we think about lynching and what often drove lynching and not to, you know, if, if anyone gets a chance to go down to Montgomery to mm-hmm. the Equal Justice Initiative Museum Memorial, you will learn people were lynched for lots mm-hmm. of reasons. I mean, things that were so minor, but often the narrative you heard was about protecting white women from these, you know, dangerous black men um, and that that narrative still exists. In fact, the race, not, it's not just the race of the person who caused the harm, but it's often the race of the victim that drives a death sentence. So a white victim, there's more likelihood you'll get a sentence of death. Um, but the, the advocacy effort was really around raising up the voices of those who also are victims, but were never given platforms. And then, and truly listening to what is it, you have suffered harm here. What is it that you need? What is it that you're asking for? And a recognition that this offer of this punishment, particularly the death penalty, which takes decades. I mean, average times on death death row are more than 20 years, Mm -hmm. decades. And there's hearing after hearing and process after process. So there's no... There's no sort of closure right away. Um, when a victim or, or family members have to relive that worst day over and over in court hearings, court processes, it's just re-traumatizing. And then when, and there's never really the question of, does this actually get you to healing? And by shifting and redefining justice to have a focus on healing, have a focus on what truly does make us safe, because the other thing is we offer these punishment and these very harm, tra- traumatic responses of incarceration as a path to safety. But there's a lot of data that shows that actually that doesn't, that's not what deters someone from, cause, from doing an act of harm, that it's really fear of apprehension. It's not, it's not, no one is thinking at the time that they have a gun in their head. Oh, they changed the law. I can actually get 20 years for this for now instead of 10 years for this. That's not what's going through a person's head. So, you know, so if safety is a goal and this isn't getting us there, then what will get us there? And let's listen to you and hear from you about what you need to feel safe. And then is there really a chance to repair the harm? You know, so often um, in talking with victims and survivors, there are questions. They want to know why. They want to have a chance to confront and to hear. And that our system doesn't doesn't allow that. It doesn't provide that. In fact, there's a, a real separation. There's no talking between, you know, the prosecutor and the defense, you, you, you have a, um, and, and no real opportunity up until just that sentencing where the victim can make a statement. And even that is directed to the court. The defendant can make a statement that's directed to the court. So all those things that a victim is looking for and need aren't happening in our response. And so by asking them and realizing that this isn't it, it, that is how we can fuel the advocacy. You're doing these things. It costs a ton of money, a ton of resources. And you have to spend the money and resources to at least try to make sure that you have the right person. If you're going to do something this final, we can't like take the money away or shorten the time because even with the money we're putting in and the time it takes, we're still getting it wrong. We still have people who are innocent who are killed. So we can't shorten it, you know, then 
then what is the answer? And so for us, a lot of our advocacy is um, let's actually resource the things that create safety. Let's resource the things that provide healing and that there are different approaches outside of a system that isn't providing any of that. You know, you bring up, I was taking notes as you were, (laughs) as you were talking, because it brings up a lot of things for me. You know, recently I've been thinking, you know, I I mentioned as someone who watches crime shows like As I Craft, which, you know, obviously, (laughs) you know, the product of the environment that and the generation, right, that, you know, has put crime, sensationalized it, put it on TV, something that, you know, we watch as hobby and engage. And, you know, recently watching some of the shows that I watch, you know, there was a case of a, a guy who there was no question that he murdered, you know, this woman. It was a domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. He even admitted there, there wasn't a question of that. It was the question of, you know, why he did it, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of the guilty. And it made me think, you know, just the system that we use, guilty versus non-guilty, is outdated mm-hmm. in some instances, right? Because oh. did you cause the, you know, did you, by your hand, take this person's life? There's no question. You did, right? Yep. You know, and yep. I remember being on yep. MSNBC and getting, oh my God, I got so much uh, messages and calls and hate mail or whatever you, because I said that uh, George Zimmerman was, um, you know, murdered. This person, it was like, he was acquitted. I was like, but the fact of did he take this person's life? Like, yes, he did. Right? Like, no question. So from the very definition, did he murder this person? Yes. Now, it's different in terms of how we're going to address the accountability of him committing this act. But is there a question that this act was committed and that he is responsible for it? No. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think we have equated i mean just it it can be murder it can be sexual assault just different things right of putting so much on guilty versus non-guilty versus that accountability to me it would make more sense as you mentioned um to your accountability for committing this act is you have to explain to the you know why you do have to like face the family and face like those kinds of things, which I think are, you know, people, I, I know people in my family are rather go to jail than address the harm that they've committed to their mama, to their own mama. I don't talk to my mama, but I'll, I'll go do these five years, but I don't want to tell my mama that I was doing drugs and doing whatever of the accountability, right? Like of that kind of piece. Because that's where the work is required, right, Eljoy? It's like, that's actually, because that requires work. We, You can be sentenced, go through a whole process, go do time, and never actually reckon with what you yep. did so that you can change to prepare yourself and be different and better so that you don't do it again. But our system actually isn't set up for that. It is solely focused on punishment. Yeah. And you raising just this kind of, like, this just false dichotomy, you know, the, the answer is either you're guilty or you're not guilty. I would say it goes even further. It's, it's all about our system is around this narrative of we must protect us good people from the bad people. And so that's why we're okay with permanently removing people from our communities. But that asking why 
why did the harm happen? Because when we ask that question, what we find is there's not a person. I, I just, I'm sure there's some, some exception because there's always is, but the vast majority of people who hurt someone have first been hurt. And usually that hurt started very young. I had never had a case in my years of as, as a prosecutor, a violent crime case where someone caused harm, that the trauma in their lives didn't almost always start even in childhood. They had, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, abuse or, or being removed from homes, you know, just caught up in system. And when we ask the why question, it requires more of us as a society, because when we ask the why you did it, what we find is they were hurt and we did not meet their needs. We did not provide a path to healing and we have to own it, but we don't want to do that. We'd rather make this about what you did quote unquote, bad person. So we'll punish you because then we don't have to own anything. We don't have, we're not responsible for the harm and that happened. And it doesn't keep we've got safe. It, you know, like, and it's not got, like, and it's all of these, again, systems that are archaic. And I don't even want to use the word reform because like, I feel like it's not a situation of reform and it's abolishment, right? Like, yeah. you know, from the death yes. penalty to our justice system itself, like the actual proceedings, as yep. I mentioned, this guilty versus non-guilty piece to, yeah. you know, prisons, to policing, like yeah. all of that is interconnected and is yeah. just archaic systems that human beings have to confront and say, okay, none of this is working. <laughs> like, how yeah. do you, and I think people are apprehensive because people immediately go to, well, if we don't have prisons, if we close the prisons, then people are just going to be in the community and then everybody's going to die. And, the, you know, like the, it, there's always that gut reaction. Well, if we change, you know, it to accountability, what, what about serial killers, right? Like there's always the going to the extreme yeah. notion rather yeah. than dealing with the yeah. fact, not only the people who are committing harm, but those of us who are among the community that are supposedly in our name, this is keeping us safe that we have to yeah. do work then too. Yes, yes. And it's why, even as you were mentioning the shows, you know, that are so popular and so many people have them on, why they can be dangerous, mm -hmm. right? You know, because what they do is reinforce this narrative, this very simple narrative of good versus bad, which just isn't true. And especially when we know we can go deeper and put it in historical context, we know it's deeply rooted in white supremacy and anti-Blackness. This sort of good-bad dichotomy that exists in our system is deeply racist, you know, but it feels good to have a good guy and a bad thing happens and that bad, you know, that quote-unquote bad person gets punished and it's resolved and, you know, there's a, a win, a victory, right? Like it's set up as this kind of battle between the prosecution and defense and there's a victory at the end. But that, but those narratives being shown over and over and they are, they're on every single yeah. night, you know, just reinforces the story that allows us to continue to punish and allows us to continue to have things like the death penalty when we know it's deeply flawed and rooted in anti-Blackness and white supremacy. Yeah. So this morning, we're talking about a heavy topic, but we're trying to keep you engaged. And I have Johnny Hodge from the Equal Justice USA organization, which does work all over this, um, trying to abolish <laughs> the death penalty. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, the Death Penalty Information Center put out its annual report. What are some of the most striking findings or themes that you see from this uh, this year's report? 
Yeah, I think the thing, the overall theme is that our country continues to move away from the death penalty. And that is good news, you know, that we we had a slight uptick, you know, so we had 24 executions in 2023, which was up from 18 the year before. But in the context of the death penalty, this is still lowest numbers that we've seen in the last decade. Over the last decade, we've just continued to see a decrease. Only five states had executions, only seven had death sentences. And so um, so the overall takeaway is we continue to move away. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most was the that for the first time, we have more Americans believing that the death penalty is unfair, administered unfairly than fairly. And to me, that shows the progress of the advocacy work, you know, that people are learning, they are hearing the stories, the media interest in um, cases of innocence. Um, There were several this past year with a lot of media attention paid to folks like um, the Glassop case and others where there's like evidence of innocence and questioning. Um, And the more people are learning, the more they're like, wait a minute, people are on death row and these are the facts, you know. Um, and that there's a real concern about how it's administered, even if there still may be support for it, ultimately. So that, to me, um, is a huge takeaway and very motivating in the um, advocacy area. But we also continue to see, you know, the um, racial disparities in the death penalty. And that, I think, is important to highlight. We have African-Americans at only 13 percent of the population, but more than 40 percent of the folks on death row. Um, again, I will continue and always continue to point back to history. Like I, none of these are things are by accident. When we put them in our historical context and understand the connection between moving away from lynching and moving to state sanctions ex- executions instead, um, then those racial disparities are not surprising. And and I want to name that I, I try to really always emphasize the history because if not, there are people who will hear, oh, 40% of the people on death row are Black, and they will take that as reinforcing those false narratives. Well, it's because they are more violent, more dangerous, more criminal. Um, and we have to continue to fight that narrative by placing things in their historical context so that we can name the narrative, so that we can attack it, Right. So those disparities still exist. And, you know, but there's still work to do, you know, like the the report. The other really important part that I, I need to make sure I, I don't forget to say is the people we execute are our most vulnerable people. The vast majority of people on death row have either suffered some debilitating childhood trauma They have some brain deficiency, whether that is they are low on the IQ, some scale, they've had some brain injury or trauma, um, but there's some mental deficiency um, or there's serious mental illness. Like those three categories are prevalent. And even of the folks who were, um, that the report talked about this year, I want to just pull the number, but we have 79% had either one of those categories. So mental, serious mental illness, some type of brain defect, or serious childhood trauma. So that's the vast majority of the people, of the 24 people who were killed this year. So again, what that does is it speaks to how we have failed. Um, here are the most vulnerable folks that we did not show up for them when they were children experiencing trauma. I think the story of one of the men who was executed in Florida um, early this year, Donald Dilbeck, tells that. You know, he was born addicted to alcohol. 
as a young child, he he was abused. You know, there's there's you know stories told about you know physical abuse, use of extension cords, sexual abuse. Um, he spent his elementary years being bounced around in foster homes, being separated from the one person who loved him, his sister. Um, and so, should we be surprised that by the age of sixteen he committed a murder? You know, so it's you know, but we have to again have have a willingness to own, like, let's like look at who it is that we are choosing to kill and why. Ask the questions why. And where did, where is it that we, where have we failed as a society? And it's why, you know, I'm so passionate about the work we do at EJUSA, because it's not just ending the death penalty, but it really is about how do we interrupt these cycles of violence? How do we make sure that when trauma happens, needs are met so that we can reduce the chance that that person is going to take that harm and then, you know, know that trauma drives harm. It's a driver of violence. And if we can actually create pathways to healing, we can meet people where they are, then that is what gets us to safety. It's not this punishment, you know. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, you know, we talked a lot in the report, it mentions the racial disparities. but. There's yes. also, you've made a hint to it as well about class, right? Um, and people, uh, poor people, poor white people also experience, yep. experience this as well. And obviously the death penalty existed before, you know, th- th- this modern time that, you know, that we're in. How, you know, I imagine it's the same thing in terms of the disparities, right? It's class, yeah. it's income levels uh, yes. from that standpoint as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's why Brian Stevenson right says that it is better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent in our system, right? You know, because that access to counsel and access to lawyers um, who can um, truly make a government prove its case, truly do the investigations. I mean, this is again, if we go back to that historical context, even as uh, the transition in the early 1900s from lynchings to more state-sanctioned executions, those early trials would be held in like two hours. You know, all-white jury, mm-hmm. either very few, if any, witnesses called, and then the entire trial and conviction would happen within a matter of a couple right. hours, you know, and then someone, you know, especially in those early days, would be a public hanging, you know. So it's, no, a trial, you yeah. know, and as, as someone who's done many, um, requires real work in real skill. And so many of our, in particular, our public defense system is underfunded. It's not resourced. And in many of the claims that come out that we find out later, you know, that are either claims that are questioning a conviction or maybe actual claims of innocence are due to a lack of evidence that like either being either from prosecutorial misconduct, the prosecutor knew it and didn't turn it over, um, or there just wasn't the investigation done to prove the alibi. The person actually wasn't in the city. And if you had done the investigation as their lawyer, you could have brought that proof to the jury that they weren't even there, you know, or or here's here's the the what's called exculpatory, you know, information that shows that they're, they, they weren't the person to do it. And so that, but when you have money, you can pay for a high-priced, very skilled lawyer, and you don't have to worry about those things um, that the vast majority in our system face with underfunded defense systems. Yeah. So, you know, in the past couple of episodes, I've also been bringing in an international perspective, right? Because, you know, as right. Americans, we have the, the the sense of like everything revolves around us and nobody else is addressing these issues. 
but us because we yeah. are almighty Americans. But I wanted to see, yeah. are there any notable international perspectives or trends that yeah. um, that can influence our policies and our laws here in the United States? Yeah. Internationally, we are behind. Um, not just in the death penalty. So many countries do not. They, they just don't do executions. And, and both in the extreme, um, both breadth and amount of time of people we incarcerate. You know, we are, there's some more recent data that says that we may not be number one, we may be number two now, but for a long time, we were first in the world. There was not a place on the planet that incarcerated more than we do. And then for the amount of time, you know, that we will give people. But yes, internationally, we are, there's so many, and, and particularly if we look at our peer countries, they are not incarcerating, they are not doing executions. We are behind, but, you know, we, and there are efforts, right, um, that are happening through places like the UN um, to to call us in, right, to, as a country that we should join, evolve, right? <laughs> where so many other places have, away from this inhumane, barbaric practice. But I honestly don't think we're going to ever get there until we address the narrative, right? You know, we, we have to be willing to, to question and interrogate the why behind. Um, because when people think about who is being executed or who is being incarcerated, they think of this dangerous, violent other it's not, you know, it's not their family member. It's not someone that they care about. It is, it is deeply rooted in this dehumanization that attached at slavery that we've never fully combated as a country. And I think when we do that work, that is how we'll evolve and catch up with the rest of the, you know, the... the you know, and I think that's another point often when I've discussed the death penalty, either in public or in ongoing discussions, People will say, well, if this person murdered, you know, your child, wouldn't you want them, you know, punished, executed? And I, and I would say yes. But then I'm glad that we have a system in place that is not focused on a tit for tat or retribution, but should be focused on yeah. justice. Right. So like to address yeah. that, yes, it is, you know, human that you would be like, yes. Based upon this person committing this act to me, my family member, whatever, I want to be pissed. That's yes. <laughs> right. Like, I want to put yep. them in yep. jail. I want to, like, so to, you know, you don't deny that people have those feelings. But then I'm yep. glad that there should be a system in place that is not focused on retribution, you know, and should be focused on justice in that, in that instance. Because then now... I am complacent and the system is complacent yeah. in committing retribution and another act of violence, right? Yes. Rather than getting yeah. to accountability and justice, right? So don't deny that that's how you would yeah. feel. And I want, you know, you mentioned the conversation about media's input on this because, you know, mm -hmm. we, we can all, the conversation, anytime you're talking about the death penalty, media you know, will then craft this narrative, right? They're putting the images of yeah. the family, the impact of the family thing, whatever, all to elicit the sympathy of, well, this is deserved because of this act. Or we yeah. get to the instance where it's wrongful conviction and then, you know, you want to create the, the, the perfect scenario. And something I've said before is that justice isn't just for the well-behaved. It isn't just for, you know, those who've done everything wrong and they, you know, they were the good kid and 
Then they got wrongfully yeah. convicted and, you know, this. No, it could yeah. be somebody who was, you know, probably a crackhead and committed this act. Yep. But they deserve this as yep. well. They deserve life as well. Yeah. Talk about how do we push back on those media narratives that sort of create yeah. these yeah. perfect victims, perfect criminals that contribute to our thoughts about our justice system. Yeah. I'd, before that, I just want to, like, there, there's something you said that there are a couple of things I just want to say real quick. Um, the first thing is that vengeance is not healing, right? right? And so part of, is the pro- part of the issue in our system is we don't offer a victim anything else. So when something has happened to their loved one, what we say to them is, we can get some vengeance yep. for you. But we don't offer them a path towards healing. It's why I'm very excited about things like restorative justice, um, which is a, a work we've actually recently brought on at Equal Justice USA, but I've been a fan of it for a long time. But it is, it's actually a chance to offer a victim something else, you know, a process where there is a requirement of acknowledgement of the harm, that there is this chance for real repair, and then an opportunity for change for the person to to have a plan to how do they equip themselves to not go out and do whatever that harm was again. Um, but when we don't offer you anything but vengeance and you have lost a family member, of course, you know, it, it is it, it completely makes sense and you will take the vengeance because that's the only thing offered. And to that's you. just not in um, these and, cases, but even I, I feel the same way ironically enough, we had this conversation after Thanksgiving dinner in my living room about issues of sexual assault, right? And that the only option you have is to sue for someone to go to jail or sue and get money, right? Like there's no other way. And so when people are like, oh, women are only suing so they can get money, it's just like, well, that's the only thing that the system provides, like option that I have. Yeah. Sue for this person to go to jail yeah. or sue and get money. But more than likely, they, that's not, yeah. they don't want either. This is, they just want some accountability here. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And we've got to do a better job of creating those pathways, right? You know, as systems, as, as you know, as a collective who's responsible for our safety and our healing. We've, we've got to own holding leaders accountable to resource it, but because they exist, they, they are happening on the ground. We just have to resource them and expand them. But they're, you know, creating other other pathways, other options. But to the question about the media, I think part of it is we have to tell the story. We have to tell other stories, right? We have to create platforms like a Sunday Civic platform where there is engagement that is deeper than just the headlines, you know, and where the stories aren't just controlled by those who are driven more by revenue than the truth. So having platforms like this and and bringing, being able to tell the stories, you know, being able to share just even briefly what I just shared about um, Donald Dilbeck in Florida, who was executed, that's not when you Google his name and look up the media reports about his execution, those media reports focus on what he did, not what was done to him. And a trauma informed approach, it asks not, you know, ask what happened to you, not what did you do, right? And so telling the stories that prompt us to ask the what happened to you question and then to own how do we not allow that to happen to the next person? because that gets us to safety. But so many people don't know that there's something else we can do besides call the police and punish. 
And until we tell the stories and uplift the solutions that are working, people won't know and they will continue to think they won't. Well, there's nothing else for me to do. And so this is the only path I have. And I need something. You know, someone was taken from me. Someone hurt me. Um, But we've got to uplift the stories of there are other pathways that are working that actually get to healing as opposed to punishment, just punishment and vengeance. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about action. We've talked about us telling our own stories or telling stories in general that counter the ongoing narrative. You know, that's one thing that can be done. What can listeners do to contribute not only to the discourse, but action, right? Like what I I started at the top and talking about some states have moratoriums and that was a lot of work, not only done by organizations, but also individuals in those states organizing against that. What are some actions that people can do surrounding the death penalty? Yeah, specifically around the death penalty, a lot of our advocacy, and we don't do this alone, it is in partnership, usually with a state-based organization where the executions are happening with the grassroots leaders who are working there. Um, but, But there are always petitions. There are calls, like we share the phone number, here's the governor's office, like on this day, please flood the office and make the calls, sign the petitions, like help us share and tell the story because the stories that will be put out by us and by our partners on the ground will be the full story. It won't be just what they did. It will be what happened to them and why this actually isn't a just response. So so sign up for our website, please, ejusa.org, so that you can follow our work. And again, our work is broader than the death penalty, but it's, it's an important area of our work. Uh-huh. And there, you know, we can also happily connect you and make sure you're looped in to the more state-based actions as executions are happening. And then vote, right? Like, you know, there are the governors decide, you know, at the end whether or not to grant clemency. You know, they have the power to stop executions. And when you, you know, control who's sitting in that role in your state, you know, or even who your DA is, who your de- your district attorney, your lead prosecutor, who is asking for that death sentence, the vast majority of prosecutors in this country are elected. Your local prosecutor is someone that you vote for. And so making sure that you understand what is their position on the death penalty? Are they going to be asking for death sentences if you're in a state where the death penalty is still an option? Um, So just being informed and using your voice, but um, following us and then educating yourself about the fact that there is something else we can offer victims. And so, again, you can do that by um, following our work. I would direct people to a website that we've helped establish called NewarkSafety.org. It is our deepest work. We've done some incredible work in Newark under the leadership of Mayor Ross Baraka to significantly address violent crime by building out a community-based, community-led system of response to harm. And so it is not, people don't just call the police in Newark. What we document on that site in our in our report is an ecosystem of more than 20 organizations, many of them grassroots, that are available to address trauma, to meet need, to literally get at the root causes of violence. And Newark right now is, is experiencing a 60-year low in their gun violence. And so tell those stories, learn about it by going to newarksafety.org and then help us amplify and tell the stories so that people know there are things out here that are working. Johnny Hodge from the Equal Justice USA organization, thank you so much for coming to the front of the class this morning. 
I have to have you back. There's so Thank many different having so many here. different things, so many different avenues that we can go down. I had like po- lots of post-it notes <laughs> of you know as we were having the conversation. So I appreciate you and look forward to having you back to talk more about even just the restorative justice yes. practices and what we can do in our community and lead ourselves rather than led by yes. a system we know is flawed. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. No problem. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this morning. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics and more ways that you can stay civically engaged.